Welcome to Modern Ancestral Mamas, a podcast for mamas created by mamas. We discuss ancestral food, cooking, feeding our families, and holistic living with the everyday modern mom. We are Corey and Christine, two mamas on a mission to nourish our families holistically while keeping it real in today's crazy world. Follow us on this adventure and enjoy the stories and information we share. This particular episode goes into some explicit details that might not be appropriate for younger ears. We just wanted to give you a courtesy heads up to our listeners. All right. So welcome back to Modern Ancestral Mamas. This is episode, I think, 15. (laughs) Um, And we are interviewing Laura Beldum from... Beldum Woman Care, and she is a fertility awareness method practitioner. And so I wanted to start by introducing Laura to the show. Um, We actually met when I moved to Dallas uh, via the Weston A. Price Foundation. She reached out to me for some resources in the Dallas area. And when I actually looked her up on social media and I was immediately intrigued by what she did. And so we set up a time to meet in person and we ended up talking about everything under the sun from free birthing to fertility, ancestral eating, vegetarian, vegetarian, vegetarianism, (laughs) um, emotional healing and so much more. And so now she's a great friend and I'm so honored to have her on the show and talk about what she does to support women and girls through our sacred womanhood. And so basically, Lara is a fertility awareness educator who loves supporting women in connecting more deeply with their bodies. She teaches a group series and offers one-on-one education to help women feel totally confident in using the fertility awareness method for contraception. She is also passionate about sharing this information with younger women and girls, and she leads girls' classes and circles on body literacy, the menstrual cycle, and more. So, Laura, do you want to say hi? Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> awesome. Um, so we actually start, yes, we start every episode <laughs> with a question uh, related to the topic of the show. So go ahead, Corey. Take us away. Okay. So we're going to start off asking, um, when did you get your first menstrual cycle and what was the experience that you had at that time? Yeah. So I was a little older when I first started my period. Um, a girl's first menstrual cycle or period is also called her menarche or menarche, um, which I really love that word anyway, but I was a little older. I was 15. Um, And so a lot of my friends had already gotten it and I was sort of excited about it. Um, And when it happened, I think I was running cross country and I had my first boyfriend at the time and I was feeling sort of not great, just tired and achy. And I told him and he was like, oh, I don't want to hear about that. Um, And my, uh, my family was very supportive. It wasn't shamed or anything. Everyone in the family knew. My dad knew, my mom knew, my brother knew. Um, 
but it also, so there was no like negative stuff, but there also wasn't really any positive stuff around um, getting my first period. So um, yeah, I just remember sitting on the toilet for a while with a heating pad. Um, I really wish there, there would have been a little bit more ceremony or like joy around it. Um, but it was kind of just middle of the road. It wasn't really good. It wasn't really bad. Um, yeah. So that was, that was my first, first time. Christine, how about you? Yeah. Um, so I was actually also 15 and it happened. I'll, I'll never forget because it was sort of just, it was all kind of like a blur. Um, I got it on the day that I have swim practice and we had to rush off to the pool so I could get to swimming. And my mom kind of like threw a tampon at me and I don't, I don't even really remember if she like told me how it worked. I kind of just sort of had to like figure it out. Um, and then I went and had swim practice and I vividly remember like telling her not to tell my dad. I was like mortified. I didn't want my dad to know. And I, I kind of feel like I sort of just like fumbled my way through the first few years of my menstrual cycle. It was not, it, you know, unlike your experience, Laura, I almost feel like there was more negativity associated with it just because it was, I was so confused by all of it. Like I didn't have it. I didn't, you know, I love my mom. She's amazing, but like she did a terrible job of introducing this to me. We never talked about it. You know, it wasn't ever a discussion. It was just like, okay, here's some tampons. <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, that was it. Oh man. <laughs> um, so I was definitely younger. I was 11 and, um, I was also the oldest of all of my friends just because of when my birthday was and, you know, when school started, I was the oldest in the grade. Um, and I was at, was at church, but it was like a Wednesday. So it was an afternoon thing. And thank goodness my friend who had not started hers yet had a purse stocked full of things. And, um, cause her mom was like very prepared and she had an older sister. Um, so my mom wasn't there. My family wasn't there. I think I was dropped off and I went to my friend and I was like, I need one of those pads. <laughs> and then I remember when my mom picked me up from church, she starts like crying because I told her and you not know, like in a good way, you know, she was very happy and <laughs> I was like mortified. I did not want to talk about it. I didn't want it to be a thing. And she was like, um, we're going to drop your dad off and your sister off and your brother off at home. And then we're going to go to the grocery store and we're going to talk about all of the things and, you know, pick out the pads together, whatever. I could not handle tampons like at all. So I never used tampons, but that, that was pretty much it. Yeah, I was mortified, it. though. Like, I did not want to talk about it one little bit. 
I mean, I, I do want to talk about that, Laura. Maybe we don't bring it up right now, but this idea of like shame surrounding the menstrual cycle and, and why that is. And, but yeah. So yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, Laura, how about um, you tell us a little about, about who you are and what you do before we get farther into the episode. Sure. Um, Well, so I am a cycle educator um, and I teach fertility awareness, which um, fertility awareness, which I I think we'll get into more, but basically it's becoming aware of when when a woman is fertile, when she is able to get pregnant. Um, A lot of times when I say that people think I'm talking about infertility awareness, like spreading awareness that there is infertility in the world. And I guess that's kind of what I do because I I do tell women about when they're fertile and when they're not fertile. Um, But anyway, um, so I I got into this work um, because I was really interested in birth. I was in the world of of birth keeping. I was attending births as a doula. Um, I got really into free birth, which is a whole other uh, topic for another day, but it's a big passion of mine. Um, and I was just really excited about um, supporting women in, in autonomous birth, pregnancy, um, and all of that. And I was teaching childbirth education, working at a birth center, and I just realized there was this big chasm between um, where I felt like women really wanted and needed to be uh, in terms of connection to their bodies, to their intuition, to their like mammalian brain and, and, and body in order to give birth in total confidence. Not that there's not fears, of course there are, but but just being able to connect to our bodies in in that way. And I found fertility awareness, um, which I had been sort of loosely aware of before that. And I was like, oh, that's how we connect way before any of this. Um, That's how we can connect to exactly what's going on in our bodies and how, how we change throughout, um, a monthly cycle and, um, connecting to our own bodily intuition in order to do whatever, prevent pregnancy, achieve it, um, and just understand hormonally, psychologically what's going on, um, throughout, throughout our cycles and throughout our lives. So I went down the path of, um, becoming a fertility awareness educator Um, I really, I love birth. I love postpartum. I love pregnancy, but it's not, um, working in that field is not my total passion. And once I started sharing information about fertility awareness, I was so pumped because it just makes me feel, it it feels so important. Um, especially with, you know, like legal changes that are going on, but even without that, I just think that all women need this information and can, um, have so much more power than, than we realize. Um, yeah. So, so just a little bit about me, I have a history of, um, like thyroid health issues and monitoring my cycle with fertility awareness feels really grounding. Um, it's like another body sign that I can use, um, to know how I'm doing health wise. So beyond like contraception, beyond, uh, fertility, um, it's a really wonderful marker of health too. And that feels really good. Um, so I, 
I currently practice fertility awareness for myself, mostly for health reasons. Um, but I teach it for contraception. I teach it for trying to conceive. And um, I really wanted to work with girls too, because when I first learned about fertility awareness, I was like, what the heck? Why are we not teaching girls this information um, and teens? And I don't necessarily teach young girls how to prevent pregnancy with this, but just giving them the foundations of, of understanding how it works. And I'm, I've been amazed at how much they grasp at the age of nine. Um, they're talking about hormones and how they're basically the Hermes of the body. And, and I, I just love hearing the way they, um, they understand it. So, um, yeah, that's, that's what I am. That's what I'm doing. And that's what I love. Okay. So can you, um, give us kind of a very specific definition of what fertility awareness, sorry, fertility awareness method guys i'm really good at this <laughs> um actually is <laughs> yes yes um so i'll i'll distinguish here between fertility awareness and the fertility awareness okay. method so fertility awareness is an awareness of when a woman is fertile so when she is able to get pregnant and fertile versus not able to get pregnant, not fertile. So that changes on a day-to-day -day basis throughout a woman's uh, menstrual cycle. Um, and that can be used for any, you know, for bodily connection, um, for contraception, for trying to conceive. Um, but then the fertility awareness method is specifically taking that information and using it to prevent pregnancy. So then there are specific rules that you follow in order to successfully um, use the fertility awareness method to prevent pregnancy. And there are many different um, fertility awareness based methods. So I teach one of them, which obviously is the best. Um, but yes, there are um, there are many different fertility awareness based methods, but it's it's all about preventing pregnancy, whereas fertility awareness is just um, like the knowledge that goes behind it uh, without like the specific rules for what you do to prevent pregnancy. Okay. Thank you. That's very helpful. Um, all right. So how does um, fertility awareness method uh, look in practice? Without yeah. So hugely graphic. Um, yeah. I don't think it's graphic <laughs> at all. Um, well, yeah, I mean, the female body is glorious and beautiful, so I don't think it's graphic. <laughs> um, fertility awareness works because our bodies produce various fertile signs. So, um, when a mammal is fertile, so like, uh, a dog or a cat goes into heat, other mammals, like there are very obvious signs when mammals are able to get pregnant their behavior changes, sometimes their like physical appearance changes. Those things happen for us too. They're just a bit more subtle, although not so much once you get to know those signs. Um, so in humans, for, for women, those signs include a change in cervical fluid. So cervical fluid is um, a liquid, well, a fluid produced by the cervix. Um, and the cervix is at the base of the uterus which is the amazing thing that opens and closes for babies to be born, for menstrual blood to flow. Um, 
Yeah. So cervical fluid is amazing because it either allows or prevents um, babies from being born. So the three things that are necessary for conception are sperm, egg, and cervical fluid, unless you're doing something like artificial insemination. Without cervical fluid, sperm cannot reach the egg. I'm going to say that again. Without cervical fluid, sperm cannot reach the egg. Um, and that's because cervical fluid allows sperm to survive. Um, so that's, that's the main reason why fertility awareness works is because of cervical fluid. There are other body signs that women can track too, though. Um, so the main other one is basal body temperature. So basal body temperature is the, um, your earliest in the early morning body temperature. It's basically your, your resting um, body temperature. So that's the lowest temperature when you're at sleep, uh, asleep. Um, but we just take it first thing in the morning. And um, the way that works for fertility awareness is after ovulation, after women release an egg, um, our body temperature rises because of various hormonal changes. Um, and so you can know that you have already ovulated using basal body temperature. And so cervical fluid in combination with basal body temperature, um, are a, it's a useful pairing because cervical fluid changes before ovulation, basal body temperature changes after, um, However, I mean, we can get more into the details of this or, um, or we can talk more about it in another episode maybe, but um, there's, I, I definitely don't recommend that women ever just use basal body temperature um, because you're not going to know when ovulation is coming. You only know that it has already occurred. So if you're trying to prevent pregnancy and you're only using basal body temperature, um, that's assuming that your previous cycles, um, like ovulation day is going to be the same going forward. Um, I'm not sure if that makes sense, but if you, um, are assuming that because last cycle, your temperature rose on day 15, um, and so then perhaps you avoid having sex leading up to that, that's still assuming that you're gonna, that you're a robot and humans aren't, you know, women aren't robots. Uh, we don't necessarily ovulate on the same day, every cycle. Um, but cervical fluid, on the other hand, tells us on a day-to-day -day basis whether we're fertile. So um, that's a really, really important body sign to track with fertility awareness. So that was kind of a long answer of what it looks like in day-to-day, -day, but it's basically checking cervical fluid. Um, you can take your temperature. There are other body signs that women sometimes check, um, including cervical position because the, the uterus and the cervix move throughout the cycle. That's not one that I um, particularly recommend because we all have different anatomy and our cervixes are just going to be in different um, positions. And it's, it's a little squirrely to check. Like not everyone wants to wake up every morning and <laughs> check their cervix. I don't particularly. Um, but there's also LH testing. Anyway, there, there are a lot of other body signs, but it can be as simple or as complicated as you want it to be. Um, yeah. So basically to pinpoint when you're ovulating, you need to know cervical fluid and basal body temperature. And is it possible to like pinpoint it to the day? Well, not really. so 
I believe that, so the only really guaranteed way is to get an ultrasound, which I don't particularly want to do. Um, You can know for sure if you watch it on an ultrasound. Um, But there, you can get pretty darn close with cervical fluid and basal body temperature. Um, And... um, there, there is a window. So not, again, we're not robots. Not, not every woman is the same. Um, most women ovulate, you know, on this one day based on like when their cervical fluid changes, when their basal body temperature rises, but there is variation. It's possible to ovulate, um, before, you know, like two days before your temperature rises, or it's, it's even possible to have your temperature rise. And then you ovulate, um, because again, we're, you know, we're not, we're not robots and there are, um, there is like a little bit of hormonal complexity, but fertility awareness allows, um, like a buffer for that. So based on the rules, you can, um, you can still be confident that you're preventing pregnancy. As far as knowing for sure, some women experience, um, like ovulation pain or that ovulation sensation. And, um, I do trust that that is, is very likely to be ovulation. Um, I have felt it before. I haven't felt it recently, but I know plenty of women. Yeah, I do. Do. Yeah. Wow. I will say though, I'm not sure that I did before I had kids. Like I, that's another thing I was going to mention is I have heard that mm-hmm. before. It's gotten more intense with the more kids that I've had. And I can almost tell you exactly when I am um, fertile or most fertile or whatever down to the day because of that. That's awesome. Yeah. Pregnancy and and birth also, um, I don't know if rejuvenate is the right word, but the cervix is is healed, is transformed through pregnancy and birth, and women often become more fertile after that. So their cervical fluid increases, um, cervix becomes a lot healthier and happier. So lucky y'all. Look at that, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, So I'm guessing how you help women with fertility awareness method is like basically teaching this to women or couples, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I I primarily work well one on one or or groups with uh, mostly women, some couples. um, And we learn the method. I, I explain all of the Um, like the hormonal changes that go behind it and like give very specific rules for contraception. Um, And they're, yeah, they're, they're pretty conservative. It's, you know, if, if women are only using fertility awareness for contraception, like not in combination with any other forms of contraception, um, you know, they're more, more conservative rules. So it's, you know, avoiding during when you see fertile cervical fluid, um, yeah. That's so interesting. And so how, talk a little bit about 
how our cycles are related to our overall health as a woman. And in combination with that question, um, this is a big one. Does nutrition have an impact on our cycles? <laughs> no, not at all. Does nutrition have anything, <laughs> any importance on our health and our menstrual cycle? I'm dying to know. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, so uh, overall health. When in, um, in the course that I teach, we, we go really in depth on the hormones in the cycle. And we talk about the ways in which these hormones impact so much more than our reproductive system. So estrogen and progesterone affect things like blood sugar levels, you know, bone growth and, um, maintenance, um, like mood, um, blood clotting, like all of these things are impacted by just estrogen and progesterone. That's not to even talk about any of the other reproductive hormones. Um, so having healthy menstrual cycles, having healthy ovulations, because really the goal of the menstrual cycle is not to bleed. It's not to have a period, but our body's goal is to release an egg and have a healthy ovulation. Um, and so when that happens, we have a healthy rise in estrogen, we have a healthy drop in estrogen, we have a healthy rise in progesterone. And, and of course, it's, um, there's a whole other hormonal cascade that is involved. But in addition to building up our uterine lining, preparing um, eggs in our ovaries to be released, we also get bone growth, um, healthy breast growth and development, healthy blood sugar levels, um, you know, brain function, all of those things are connected to having healthy ovulations. And so without that, um, we're going to talk about hormonal birth control in a minute, but we get, you know, the opposite. We are more prone to diabetes. There's a really big correlation between anovulatory, so not ovulatory cycles and diabetes, PCOS, things like that. Um, so there's a huge connection there. Um, and as far as nutrition, of course, that's going to be paramount. There are so many things that go into menstrual cycle health, but nutrition is going to be huge. Um, and so I would emphasize what I'm sure y'all talk about a lot, but I don't think women who want to have healthy menstrual cycles should be vegan. Um, animal fats and cholesterol is the precursor, are the precursors to all of our sex hormones and all hormones. Um, so if we want to have healthy menstrual cycles, we need to have healthy hormones. If we want to have healthy hormones, we have to have cholesterol to have cholesterol. We have to have healthy fats. Um, so that's, that's really key. I think. Amen. <laughs> yeah, I Say think. that again. We have to have <laughs> well, healthy fats. Clarify that healthy, yeah, fats healthy fats are not only avocado and olive oil. Right. Yep. I mean, those are great too, you know, coconut, olive, avocado, but I'm talking about lard, butter, tallow, milk, cream. It's okay. All I'll um, um, like insert some fan noises or something, you know, like. <sighs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, like exactly. Clapping in the background or something. That sounds I actually wonderful. can't do that. I don't know how to do that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Um, another thing I will say is I don't, I don't, um, 
have any expertise on the male body, but as far as the female body, I will say, I do not think fasting is a good idea. Um, our bodies need to know that they're safe and that they are going to be provided with enough consistent nutrition. Women's bodies produce life and we're trying to do that every cycle, basically, whether that ends in a pregnancy and birth or not, our bodies are preparing for that. And it's a lot of energy. Um, and so I believe that we need to have proteins, fats, and carbs at every meal. So not just a meal of, um, you know, fat-free skim milk yogurt. Um, we need, we need all of this stuff. We need fats, we need proteins, we need carbs. So that means, you know, not just carbs either. Um, but I, I don't demonize carbs. I don't demonize any of that. I think it's all really important for healthy hormones, healthy menstrual cycles. We have to have the reserves in order to um, nourish life, whether we're going to ever be pregnant or not. That's so interesting that you said about the fasting, because I feel like that's such, it's a trend right now. And especially I, you know, know so many women that are, you know, they do the one a day fasting or they do, I mean, I don't know, all of these fasts and it, you're right there. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel right to me personally, um, just knowing how much work our bodies have to do to, like you said, produce, um, release an egg and go through all of that. And anyway, it's just a side note. Yeah, totally. And I, I think that is an important point that you said that it doesn't matter. Um, if this ends in a baby, Right it's still about your own personal health and having a healthy cycle is good for your body regardless of the baby or not. Right. Okay, exactly. great. Um, Christine, I think you're supposed to ask this next one. Oh no, never mind. Sorry. All right. So I've been seeing this meme go around on the internet. I don't know if you guys have seen it in the last couple of days, it's a um, photograph of one of those copper IUDs, like the, you know, the original or a brand new one. I've yeah. And then that. the second half of the meme is the copper IUD that's been extracted after five years or seven years or whatever. And it's gnarly looking. It's like missing oh, no. copper and it looks like it's burnt or something. It's real nasty looking. Um, so oh I'm going to use that to transition to this question about contraceptives and specifically birth control. Um, I'm sure we all know that birth control is, you know, widely used, widely available, widely prescribed um, for women all over the world. And I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I was hardly given any information when I was put on birth control, like pretty much zero. And I think that's probably the norm from an OB. So I'd love it if you would, um, sort of touch on that and, um, you know, what women don't know 
about birth control and how it might be affecting their fertility and their health. But first, I want to tell a really quick story about myself. <laughs> so after my second baby was born, I went on what's called the mini pill. You know, it's the one that's supposed to be safe for um, breastfeeding. And so that was at like six months postpartum or six weeks postpartum. And um, I'm on this pill and pretty much uh, maybe it was like two months after I started it, I had horrendous bleeding for a month straight. And, and I mean like heavy period every day for a month. Uh, and, and I called my doctor and I said, what's going on? What do I do? And he said, nothing. This is normal. It'll work it out, work itself out. And I said, yes, screw you basically. And stopped taking birth control. I've never taken it since then. Um, and that's kind of when I started like, you know, learning more about it and discovering more about it and thinking what in the bleep is wrong with these doctors for not telling us the truth. Yeah. I think that could be an entire conversation. (laughs) I, well, small, small blurb. I think it has something to do with the fact that it is impossible to control a woman's body. It's impossible. That's why there's so much uproar about going on about it right now, which we won't go into that. But you cannot control a woman's body. There's nothing you can do about it. That's the one thing that they cannot take away from us. That's beautiful. Yes. Mm. Continue. Wow. Well, I'm sorry that that was the wake-up call that you had, but gosh, I'm glad that you had one, I suppose. Um, so yeah. Oh man. So hormonal birth control, oral contraceptives, um, are a whole thing. Uh, there's the copper IUD too, which women are told has no side effects and that's very much not true. Um, so that's, that's another rabbit hole, but, um, what you just said, Corey, women aren't given very much information about it. Women are put on the pill for so many reasons beyond contraception. That's, that's a really big deal. So acne or, um, irregular cycles I'm doing, and you know, air quotes that you can't see it because this is audio, but, um, yeah, the pill, I guess a place to start, the pill does not regulate a woman's cycle. It stops a woman's cycle. Um, there are some um, lower dose pills that supposedly allow women to continue ovulating and still impact their hormones to prevent pregnancy in a different way. But for the most part, hormonal contraception stops the normal cycle of ovulation and menstruation. Um, the continued like regular bleeds are from, they're not, they're not true periods, they're withdrawal bleeds from the withdrawal of hormones. Um, when hormones drop in our bodies, that causes um, the uterine lining to shed. Um, so that's one thing that women are not told, um, that a bleed on the pill is not a true menstrual bleed because you have not ovulated. A true menstrual bleed follows ovulation. Um, I was teaching a 
a teen class to a group of 14 to 17 year olds. And one of them, after we had, you know, gone through the whole cycle and talked about cervical fluid and hormones and ovulation, one of them asked, um, so how does being on the pill affect all of this? And I was like, oh, if you're on the pill, none of this happens. And she was floored because she had been put on the pill to regulate her cycle. And she was like, I'm not, I want to have children. Like I I'm getting off this right away. And I was very proud of her. I'm not sure if that actually happened because she's 17, but, um, I hope so. Um, so yeah, the pill does not regulate your cycle. That's something that a lot, a lot of women don't realize. And, um, you know, women who have PCOS are often given the pill as their only option. The pill, unfortunately, doesn't solve any problems. Um, it, it kind of like stops what's going on. Um, and, and there's a time and a place for that, I, I think. If like there are some women who bleed for like you were just saying, Corey, bleeding for a month. Sometimes those women are put on the pill and it stops it right away. And I'm like, okay, if that's the only thing you, you can do, let's do that. But there are other ways to do that. Um, one of the best is traditional Chinese medicine. They're uh, some sort of amazing skills at healing menstrual cycle problems. Um, one of the big issues, though, with the way the pill is used, um, when truly it's a Band-Aid, it's treated as if it's the solution. Um, that's not the thing that's going to heal any menstrual cycle issues, any reproductive health issues. The pill does not heal fibroids. The pill does not resolve PCOS um, or heavy bleeding. In fact, it, it puts a Band-Aid on a problem, which will probably come back with a vengeance when a woman is taken off of it. Um, that's not the case for all women, but masking the symptoms of a hormonal issue doesn't fix a problem. Um, yeah, masking the symptoms of a hormonal issue doesn't fix the problem. Um, so we have to actually address what's going on. And fortunately, there are more um, gynecologists these days who are looking for real solutions um, and not going straight to the pill. But but that is still, for the most part, what the, the option that women and girls are given. Um, and not just the pill these days. Um, there's the hormonal IUD. A lot of teens are being offered that because they don't have to remember to take a pill every day at the exact same time. Um, so I've worked with some girls who um, all of their peers had the hormonal IUD because of heavy periods. It wasn't for contraception. Um, they just didn't want to deal with heavy, painful bleeds. And instead of trying to figure out why they had heavy and painful bleeds, their doctors just said, oh, here, take the pill. Um, another issue. So when you stop the normal cycle, like we said earlier, estrogen, progesterone, the whole hormonal cascade affects whole body. So the pill has, well, I shouldn't say the pill, hormonal contraception, hormonal contraceptives, have whole body consequences. So some of those include blood clots, stroke, mood disorders, anxiety, depression, weight gain, changes in who you're attracted to, um, ovarian, cervical, breast cancer, bone density issues, osteoporosis, because all of those regulatory systems in our bodies are no longer there. Um, we don't have a healthy balance of estrogen, progesterone, luteinizing hormone, follicle stimulating hormone. 
um, and all the other ones. Um, so without have healthy ovulation, we're put at risk for a lot of things. Um, another thing, when teens are put on hormonal contraception, um, the teen cervix is not mature. It takes until um, we're in our 20s before our cervix is fully mature. Each menstrual cycle, those hormonal changes cause the cervix to mature. I'm doing a little circle with my hand because I guess I'm thinking about the roundness of the cervix. Um, but so when we stop that cycle, um, we're predisposing girls and then women to cervical health issues. So that's things like cervical dysplasia, um, HPV, which we can talk about, but um, just general cervical health issues because the cervix isn't mature and immature cervix is more prone to health issues. Same thing with the ovaries. Um, if you know this, the phrase, if you don't use it, you lose it with ovaries, they're atrophying because they're not being used. When we are preventing the release of eggs, the growth, um, maturation and release, um, ovaries have been shown to shrink. Um, so that can cause premature ovarian failure, infertility. So I didn't even mention that with the pill, but, um, that's a long-term consequence as well. Wait a second. You're saying the pill can cause infertility? I sure am. Wow. Yeah. That is very interesting. <laughs> interesting, disturbing, whatever adjective Sad. you want to use. Yeah. Sad. Yes. I mean, I'm, all of this is really heavy. Yeah. None of this is told to kids. Or to parents. To parents. Or parents, right? Like you're, you take your, yeah. you know, twelve-year-old in because she has heavy bleeding, and as a mom, you're like you're told by the doctor who knows stuff, this will help her, and so you go, oh, I'll just do whatever yeah. is going to help my baby. <laughs> yep. No discussion of, well, you know, when she's. 27 and wants to have her own baby this is going to cause problems or when she's 40 she may have issues or oh my gosh yeah yeah i'm i'm so glad we're talking about this um you you have here you talk you have a little bit of data on some origins of the pill Oh gosh, it's it's. I, I want you to bring that up. So the U.S. government has has a a bit of a dark history in terms of experimenting on black women's bodies, black men's bodies, women's bodies in general, and the pill is no exception to that. Um, so the in the 1950s, when the pill was first being developed. It was in its experimental stages and had not been, um, you know, used on, on humans yet. Um, testing was done, experimental testing of the pill was done on Puerto Rican women in a low-income housing project um, without informed consent. And so many of these women were rendered infertile. It was not, it was not safe for use. Um, and, and that's the origins of the pill that we have today. Um, 
it was pushed really hard by people like Margaret Sanger, who were very much in favor of um, lowering the population for poor black and brown women uh, and people, you know, families. And so that's that's where the pill came from, was trying to not have as many poor black and brown people. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it was likened to the Tuskegee syphilis study. Yeah, so the Tuskegee study Tuskegee. in Alabama was equally awful. Um, men were intentionally given syphilis in some cases, or um, those who already had it were intentionally not treated for it, not given what, you know, the, the antibiotic or um, penicillin. And they were observed basically over a period of time to see what would happen. Um, and that's basically what happened with this experimental trial of the pill. And we saw what happened and not much has changed since that early pill. It has become a little bit um, lower of dose, but it still can render women infertile. So I find all of this really ironic because it was pushed so much in, was it the 1960s? And it was this opportunity to give women freedom and control over their bodies. Yeah. Um, That's still a big selling point. And I am 100% behind giving, you know, well, I don't know if I'm in, behind giving women freedom because I don't think anyone gives us freedom. It's something that we already have. We have the power over our bodies if we have the understanding of that. Um, and sure, I don't, I don't love criminalizing women's bodies and anything that we do with them, but I don't think that disconnecting us from our menstrual cycles is liberty. I don't think long-term reproductive harm is freedom. Um, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, blood clots, mood disorders, pituitary tumors, acne, none of that is liberating. Um, informed consent is cool, but it very rarely happens. And I don't think that the pill gives true freedom. I think it gives us enslavement to the medical mafia. Yes. Couldn't agree more with that. You guys can't see this, but Christine just like did a fist pump in the air. It was really cute. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. So I don't know. Did we want, do you want to talk about the feminist movement that is so pro pro contraceptive? I mean, I don't have a ton more to say about that. Uh, I think we can move on. We're already at yeah. Yeah, do you have any... 46 minutes. Yeah, yeah you, you said it. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. Um, all right. Ooh, this is juicy. <laughs> okay, I really good. do want to get to um, how to talk with girl or our daughters about this. Because I think that's really important. I know. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, okay, so can we... Let's talk about the OBGYN appointment and then we can go to how to talk to girls about this. Yeah, we can keep that brief. Well, okay. wait. 
I so still think we should talk we, about the oh, what? products too. The, yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm good with that too. Great. <laughs> um, okay. So we wanted you to tell us a little bit about your classic OBGYN appointment with the pap smears and the mammograms. Are those things necessary for our health? Um, tell us your thoughts on what, yeah, what you think about them. Yeah. Uh, short answer is no. I don't think any of those things are necessary for our health. Um, the pap smear is a very violating sort of procedure named for a male doctor who developed the procedure, Dr. Georgios Papanelikau. I don't think I'm pronouncing his name right, but that's all right. <laughs> Um, so that procedure is, well, so the goal is looking for HPV and things that could indicate, um, like a risk for cervical cancer down the road. Um, but it has an extremely high false negative and false positive rate. So not only are women being told that they have abnormal, unhealthy cells on their cervix that could potentially lead to cervical cancer down the road or HPV. Um, but there are women who do have unhealthy cells who are not being told that they do. Um, so the, the, I have found a really big range. So it ranges from 7.5 to 20% false negative, um, meaning that they have been told that they're good, but they're not and um, an 8.9% false positive rate. So almost one out of 10 women who gets a pap smear um, and is, is told that they are you know, have abnormal cells really doesn't. Um, that's a pretty big number of women. Um, and also even the women who do have abnormal cells, according to this, it's extremely rare that anything will ever happen, that that will actually result in cervical cancer, in HPV. Um, and it's, it's so widely done. Um, and then the procedures that follow that, so say a woman does get um, an abnormal pap smear, um, you know, they, they culture the cells from your cervix with like a, a little swab. And then, you know, if they come back that they're unhealthy or whatever, then the next step might be like a biopsy or um, like a leap procedure. And both of those are extremely damaging to the cervix. They involve like slicing off a part of the cervix, which is living tissue with a lot of nerves in it. Um, supposedly there are no nerves in the cervix, but there are nerves passing through the cervix. Um, and that, That'll affect cervical fluid production. That'll affect the cervix's ability to dilate, to move. Um, another fun fact, women on hormonal contraception, on birth control, are more likely to get false positives. So their cervixes are more likely to look unhealthy, but to be okay. Um, Another thing, having sex before a few days, like three days before you get a pap smear, can make it look like you have abnormal cells on your cervix. Um, it's recommended that women get pap smears every three years, starting at age 21. Um, and it's, in my opinion, a very unnecessary procedure. Um, 
it just leads to a lot of fear and a lot of, I mean, the energetic consequences of going into an office, stripping down and having someone like insert something into you, touch your cervix and then tell you, like, give you your fate. Um, I think that's huge. I don't, I don't think we should discount that. Um, and to talk briefly about HPV, most infections clear within two years, even if you do end up having HPV, it's, there are so many strains of it. Most of them are harmless. Even the ones that are not tend to heal. Our bodies are so capable of healing. There are women who have um, gone into appointments. And actually, I, I do want to recommend that women check out this particular woman. Her name is um, Danelle Barbara Randall, and she does a lot of work on um, cervical healing specifically. She was given an HPV diagnosis and like uh, potential for cervical cancer down the road. And she healed her cervix and now helps women with that all over the world. Um, so I can, we can definitely share the information about, um, about her work, but I just want to say it's so possible for the cervix to heal. And that's, that's what our bodies do. They know how to heal. Um, and, and from all STIs, sexually transmitted infections. I, that's not a, a death sentence. So I, I did want to say that. Um, and then you mentioned mammograms as well. So I don't think the radiation from mammograms is worth it. I don't think squashing your boob in some machine is going to give you any new information. Um, mammograms also have not been shown to reduce breast cancer morality, mortality. Um, they tend to reduce, result in overdiagnosis. Um, and again, there's no reduction in overall breast cancer mortality from getting these mammograms. Um, again, false positives are super common. For every 1,000 women, there are 490 to 670 women who will receive a false positive from a mammogram. That's huge. That's over half. Um, and then of those, another 70 to 100 women will undergo an unnecessary biopsy. So have unnecessary removal of their breast tissue when they had perfectly healthy breasts. Um, so if, you, if you're worried about breast health, I would say try going braless and stop pressing on your lymph nodes with a bra, um, or at least avoid underwire, um, breast self-massage, and avoiding hormonal birth control great ways to support breast health and ways to support cervical health. Definitely check out Danelle and her work. Um, yeah. Do you think that mm, the, okay. Uh, women, well, I don't know, but so the, the fact that more women are wearing bras with underwire, do you think that has anything to do with, Breast cancer rates? Yeah, breast cancer rates maybe. It could be. Um, I don't. I don't have any statistics on that. Um, but given the concentration of lymph nodes right under our breasts and like the termination of like lymphatic channels right there, um, I think whether it's like physical or energetic, um, it, it could be. I think there definitely could be a connection. Um, if you're a woman who has larger breasts and feel like definitely the need for underwire, I would just say like do some, some breast massage, like love on those babies and uh, massage that lymph. 
it never occurred to me that I, I had like never thought before that there were lymphs under the breast. Yeah. My like, dad told me that when I was like 12 and I've never oh. forgotten it. I mean, it's, it's true, but I was like, don't tell me what to do with my breast dad. He's a chiropractor <laughs> and always has opinions on health. Um, but now I agree. <laughs> my mom told me, um, wow. When I was a teenager and like loved Victoria's Secret bars. Um, she was like, you got to stop wearing the underwire because it's, you know, potentially causes breast cancer. And I was like, mom, whatever, you're a hippie. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. My mom is almost always That's right. Weird. But like 30 years before anybody <laughs> else knows anything. <laughs> wow. That needs to be a <laughs> meme. <laughs> Um, all right. So we're moving on from the OBGYN talk and we want to talk about period products. Speaking oh, of my good. mom never yes. liked tampons, no, tampons. Okay. I don't either. I, no. I don't like Same tampons. Girl. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I, as a young teen, never, it just felt weird. It felt very like too much. Um, and now I, I don't recommend them for other reasons. Um, so I mentioned the, the girls I was working with who had like super heavy periods and whose, um, you know, their peers were being put on, um, hormonal IUDs to manage that. And so after doing a little digging, I was working with two sisters, one of whom had never had hard, you know, difficult periods. Hers weren't, they weren't painful the other sister had very painful periods. Um, over time, it came out that the sister with very painful periods was a swimmer and she had always used tampons. And so, Christine, I, I thought of that when you mentioned your tampon use as a teenager, because that can be really correlated um, with heavier periods and more painful periods. And one of the, so beyond toxic shock syndrome, which is like the typical risk that's touted out um, when we talk about tampons, they sit pretty high in the vagina. So they can even press up against the cervix. So the cervix is at the back of the vagina. So if you feel inside the vagina at the very back is the cervix and it feels kind of like the tip of your nose. Um, tampons can can sit high enough in the vagina that they press up against the cervix. And the cervix is the portal. It's the hole from which, you know, everything comes out, whether that's babies um, or menstrual blood. And so if something is blocking that, um, that portal, that um, exit, the body's going to try harder and pump harder, um, have more uterine contractions to flush that blood um, and the uterine lining out. So that means you'll have more bleeding, heavier bleeding, and more painful bleeding. Um, so that's that's one reason I don't like tampons. They're also heavily um, like chlorinated. There's a lot of bleach in them. Um, so unless you're getting like organic cotton unbleached tampons, I, you know, the mucous membranes are the uh, the membranes of the vagina are mucous membranes. So they absorb whatever you're putting in there. Um, so we're getting a pretty heavy dose of, of chemicals in a very direct way if we're using tampons. Well, and cotton is heavily 
um, sprayed with glyphosate. Right. One right. of the worst crops. Uh, you guys are <laughs> killing me. I mean, a little bit of my story. Yeah, I was a swimmer for a very long time, and I only used tampons. In fact, I didn't stop until, well, I stopped after my first, and I switched to a divvy cup um, after my first child was born. And went to a divvy cup, and that was just because pads felt the idea of sitting <laughs> in your menstrual blood was just disgusting to me. And then I met Lara, <laughs> and Lara told me, What if you were to try uh, reusable pads? And I don't, had someone told me that when I was in my 20s, I would have said that they were <laughs> insane. Um, and it probably took me this many years and this far along my, you know, crunchy, whatever, holistic, <laughs> conscious living path <laughs> to realize that, hey, that's actually a really good idea. And I haven't looked back since and I don't plan on, um, I don't plan on ever having my daughter use tampons if possible. It's just horrible. I feel so... I, Ah, can't believe I did it for so long. Um, I know I'm digressing, but one of the, one side note on this is one of the benefits I've seen with using the um, the reusable pads is that they are out invisible. So I'm I'm washing them when I'm on my cycle. My kids can see them, and we have already had the conversation of like, what is that? Why do you need that? And I've already had this this talk with my eight-year-old son about, well, I bleed every month and this is what catches the blood. And and I think it's so powerful that even my boy, my my boys are going to grow up used to this and they're going to, um, hopefully they themselves will have a deeper understanding into the female body so that if the day comes that they choose to get married, um, that that will, that will, um, they'll understand their, their significant other better. Yes. That's it. That's so beautiful, Christine. Do you also want to mention the change that you've seen in your own cycle from using cloth pads? Yes. Yeah. So I have, I have also, so one of the things that Laura said to me that just kind of blew my socks off that I'd never thought about before was the whole point of your cycle is for your body to release all of the tissue, to release all of the the blood. And so when you are stopping it up by shoving a tampon or a divvy cup up there, you're not allowing the flow, the natural flow. And not only, you know, you've talked a lot about this, this energy in the woman, the female body, and you're so right. There is something about the flow that has to happen energetically and, you know, physically, obviously. And so since I have started using the reusable pads, I have noticed that there is less of a heavy flow. And, you know, before my cycles used to be pretty heavy and now it's, it's very manageable. And I feel like it's maybe what's more, uh, what would be considered a healthier cycle. Um, I don't know, maybe you can talk a little bit more about that, Laura, but the, like the parameters of a normal yeah. cycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a pretty big range of normal, but I would say three to seven days in length 
um, would be a healthy range. And then in terms of amount, um, like a couple days of medium heavy and then like tapering off to, to light. So I, you know, more than like five days of heavy is, is probably too much. Um, but you also don't want not enough. So you want to be bleeding enough to where you know that your body is, is producing a healthy uterine lining. Um, but too much could mean something else, you know, something's up too. So we want to be sure we're nourishing ourselves so that we can have, well, the goal is healthy ovulations, but the result is healthy bleeds. Okay. That's a good place to transition into, um, your work with, uh, young girls and young women and, um, and mothers relating to their daughters. Um, so can you share with us a little bit more about that work and, and what you do with those women and girls? Yeah. Um, so I am currently starting a circle for girls. It's, um, I mostly work with nine to 12 year olds. So they're like just around the time that they are interested um, whether they've gotten their first period or not, they typically want to talk about it. Um, not all of them do, but in my experience, once you get a group of girls in a space that is set aside where they can ask anything, they, the stories just come out. Um, and it's just not something that happens when men are around. Um, so I lead a mother-daughter menstrual cycle class. Um, so far, it's a two-part class. And um, yeah, we, we talk about the reason, like why, why do we bleed? Why do women have periods? So we talk about the menstrual cycle. We talk about um, the fact that, you know, humans are mammals. And this is what mammals, well, actually, we're one of the few mammals that has a period. But we talk about the other qualities that make us mammals. So having body hair, giving birth to live young, having breasts to nourish our babies. Um, so it's, it's puberty and menstrual cycle. Um, and so in, uh, in the fall, we, um, my, my teaching partner and I, um, we were leading a class and it was just really gelling. The girls really got along and it, they wanted to keep getting together. And so they were like, what are we doing next month? We're getting together every month now. Right. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> I guess we need something else for you. Um, so we decided to create this girl's circle. And so it's going to be um, every month and um, the, the mothers will be welcome. They're not required, but um It'll be a space for girls to connect, to learn how to be in circle, how to like be in community with other women and girls. Um, we'll learn like meditation, self-care. Um, they'll have time to share what's going on in their lives. We'll talk about everything under the sun. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff. Um, but yeah, that one's more, I I'm really excited about the circle. It's less teaching and more, um, whatever's coming up for the girls and just support. Um, so that's, I'm, I'm so excited about that. And then um, I haven't done a team series recently, but that's something that's coming soon and a team circle as well. Um, so the, the 
girls circle. It's called the maiden circle for nine to 12 year olds. Um, and then the teen circle will be for um, like 13 to 18 year olds. And the teen series is, is 13 to 18 year olds as well. So that one's, um, we get a little bit more into fertility awareness. Um, we, we mention it for contraception. I don't necessarily recommend that teens use it as their only form of contraception if they're going to be sexually active, but just giving them the tools to get started and, and understand how to chart their cycles and like what's going on. Um, yeah, because that's, that's so important to me um, to give these schools, girls the tools to get started early. Um, I get asked a lot if I uh, teach younger girls and I'm not right now, but I definitely think the conversation should start as soon as girls start asking or boys. You know, Christine was mentioning talking to her kids about um, her period and, and the menstrual cycle just because it became relevant. And I think that's the best way to do it. You don't have to force these conversations on them. Um, they're they're going to come up because you're a living, breathing, bleeding woman. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't like to force anything on, on them until they're ready for it. Um, but in the class, um, they, they just seem to really have a lot to say, <laughs> um, some more than others. But by the end of the class, they're usually like, I don't know, just really overflowing with, with stories. And that's been really cool. And this is an in-person class that you do in Dallas. Okay. Yes. Yep. It's in person. I've led one, um, like a teen tween class online, but I'm really more interested in in-person. I do have a, a reference for, for someone, for a woman who teaches a girls program, um, about the menstrual cycle online. So I can share that, um, if anybody's interested. Um, okay. So I think we've touched on a lot of this. I would, I wanted to ask, how would you, or do you have a course or, um, you know, tips and tricks of how, um, mothers can, sort of help their daughters or maybe even just families um, help their daughters transition into um, healthy cycles and, you know, being aware of their bodies. And at what age do you do this? Because I know you have, you know, nine-year-olds in your classes. My daughter's going to be nine next month. <laughs> my, my oldest daughter. Oh, and I have two more. Yeah. I don't think there's really like a, okay, she's five years old. We got to start talking about this or she's eight years old. We got to start talking about that. Um, like I said, I don't, I don't think it has to be forced. Um, I mean, I, as things come up, I think they're going to start being curious. And if you, if you push it on them before they're ready, I don't think they will like I don't think that's a problem, but I don't think that it will sink in in the same way. Um, so like, you know, even little girls will will notice things and maybe ask questions. Um, you both have have young girls. Christine, has, um, has your little one been interested in your pads in the same way as, as Juan? No, interestingly enough, not as much. It's mm. been my older son who's way more interested. Yeah. Than, I mean, I can yeah. say... My, my two-year-old 
will bring me pads when I'm sitting on the toilet. Like, doesn't matter if I'm actually bleeding or not. <laughs> she, like, goes into the cabinet and gets one and brings it to me. Yeah. I mean, I think I think there are things that you can you can talk about if you want to, um, but I don't know that you need to make it like an intentional, okay, we are going to sit down and talk about like what it means to be a woman today. Um, although I do think that, you know, the reason that I have this, um, this program that I, that I teach for, for mothers and daughters is to have that sacred space that's separate from the rest of your lives um, so that you can do that if you want to. Um, so if you wanted to create that in your own life, um, maybe having a special outing where, um, you know, you and your daughter, once it feels like the right time, um, you know, go and, and like have a special meal out together without anybody else. Um, and, you know, say, we can talk about anything you want. And if that happens to be what it means to be a woman, great. If it happens to be, I'm feeling upset about this thing that happened with my brother, like that's okay too. Um, but yeah, I would say just giving them the space and respecting where they are, even if it's not where you think the conversation's gonna go. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited also to start offering like menarche ceremonies, um, which hopefully will be in the next year, because I think that's that's gonna be really special. Um, that will be more like, hopefully the women and girls who are in the, the circle. Um, so it'll be like a, a tighter community already. Um, and the girls will be honored and um, when they get their first period, um, given gifts and yeah. So a friend of mine did this did yeah. that when I was no you go ahead yeah, okay so a friend of mine when I was in I guess middle school um had this ceremony in their family and it was this thing their family did at the time I thought it was super weird <laughs> but you know I think that has to do with the way that I was processing all of that within my own life um and now I completely see how that would be a really great thing for your family. Um, yeah. Yeah. I had mentioned earlier about, I, I'm not sure if, if, you know, if everyone felt this way, but for my own personal experience, there was this almost like shame and well, negativity think, surrounding. Like we use words like your menstrual the curse, cycle. right? Or, I don't know. I, that's the one I can think of. Yeah. Well, regardless of what you call it, um, there's a negative connotation like, oh, what a pain. I've got my period. Like literally speaking yes. that prayer yep. that, that yep. your period is a pain. Um, when truly it is a symbol of abundant fertility, all of that would have gone into creating a placenta and amniotic sac and and a baby. And, you know, like all of that is literally fertile. You can fertilize plants with that. <laughs> and some people do. 
Some women do. Um, yeah. So it's, I think, just a huge paradigm shift. And um, I'll also mention, so in the, my, my partner for leading the, the girls' classes and circles, she has a teen daughter and her, her teenage daughter has been sort of hesitant to, to talk with us about this stuff. Um, but it's just something that we talk about whenever we get together and it's normal. Um, and now she's decided she wants to help lead the girls circle. And so she's going to be a part of leading the nine to 12 year olds. And that's not something that we expected at all. Um, but we're, we're so excited. And another thing that has come up recently is <clears throat> thinking about, so beyond menstrual cycle issues, um, we've had conversations about body hair. And so I'm one of the few women I know who doesn't, like I don't shave my legs or, or armpits. Um, and in circles that I was a part of a couple of years ago, that was super normal. Now moving to the Dallas area, it's not very common. Um, oh. No, it's not. Um, but now my, my friend, um, my teaching partner, Belen, her, her daughter is now thinking about, okay, why, why do we shave? Like, can I talk to Lara about like why she doesn't shave and just like having, um, having space for these kinds of conversations and, um, yeah. That's so interesting. I, I mean, I love that. I really admire actually that Lara and, you know, going back to the swimming thing, it's just, it's been engraved and ingrained in me for such a long time. I mean, I obviously did that for so many years. Um, it's just so, normal. I mean, normalized. Yeah, I, suppose. I don't yeah. know that it's normal, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, it's actually not normal because this is the first time that we've been doing stuff like this. I mean, it's not even been a hundred years. <laughs> yeah. Like humans have been hairy for <laughs> the majority of our existence. <laughs> yeah. We're mammals. So Juan used to joke, um, my husband, <laughs> he, he would say that he could tell the, this is, this is so sorry if this offends anyone, but the crunchiness of a midwife, depending on if they had a cat or arm hair, <laughs> <laughs> a cat or arm hair. Yes. One. <laughs> so if they brought up the fact that they had either a cat or if they had arm hair, then he would say, oh, that's a good one. That's going to be a good <laughs> midwife. <laughs> oh, no. That's Not even leg hair, arm hair. That's funny. No, 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 armpit hair. Oh, armpit hair. Okay, I thought yeah, you yeah. Like forearm hair. Oh, no, sorry, like armpit hair. Okay. Armpit hair, yeah. And my midwife in Chicago did have armpit hair, so. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, okay. Great. <laughs> On that note, I feel like we can wrap things up here. <laughs> um, all right. Great. Uh, Laura, do you want to tell our listeners oh, how yeah. they can find you and connect with you? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I am on Instagram. I haven't been very active lately. I've been prioritizing in-person things, but my Instagram is Beldam Woman Care, um, B-E-L-D-A-M, and then Woman Care. And in case anyone's curious, 
um, what the origin of the word beldam is. That word means, although if you look it up in the in the dictionary, it'll mean something like old ugly hag. Um, but bel means grand or fine or beautiful, and dom or dame means woman or mother. So that word should mean like grandmother or fine, beautiful woman. I think of it as like wise woman. Um, so that's what that that's, that's what that means. Um, and I have a website, it's beldomwomancare.com. Um, and I'm Lara Prentice. And um, yeah, I, I work with women one-on-one virtually um, and do group stuff in person. So yeah, the, the girls stuff is currently just in person. Um, I found that that's just something I really want to keep special and, and in person. I might eventually do online girls stuff again, but for now I'm, I'm really committed to. I think that's really beautiful. I think, um, you know, when we were living in tribal sort of, uh, environments, that would have been something that we would have had naturally in that circle of people. And I think we're really lacking that the wisdom from, you know, older women and women of our own age and cycle of life and then younger women. I just think it's something we're really missing. And I think it's beautiful that you're offering that. And I wish there was something like that where I live. Thanks. <laughs> well, I yeah. it. that's my spare time. <laughs> How about you can create a training training, and other people can from you learn. Goodness, my words tonight, guys. Yes. That I think would be really awesome. And I is something that I would love to do is sort of mentor other women and in creating this in their own communities. I love that idea. All right. Well, thank you very much, Laura, for being with us. Um, Before we leave christine what do you have to say yeah can i jump in yeah, real quick tell us about you, <laughs> um yeah so i am creating a new online course called nurtured foundations and i am doing this with leah from nurtured pediatrics and it is basically going to be a course that focuses on starting solids with your baby. So from six months ish to two years, and we're going to talk all about the developmental signs of, uh, starting solids along with the best first foods to feed your baby. We'll discuss, uh, things like, um, picky eating obviously, and any like feeding troubles that can come up, whether you do baby led weeding or, uh, purees, whether you feed your kid puffs or not, or, you know, all, all the stuff. Um, so that'll be coming out in June and you can check it out on my Instagram. There is a link to sign up for the wait list. That's great. Okay. Thank you guys. Anybody want to say goodbye? Yes. Thanks for having me. It was great. This was awesome. Lara, we might have to do another episode to dig more deep into some of this stuff. And we didn't even get to talk about, you know, the women's circles that I attend with you or, um, free birth or birth. I mean, yeah, I know that that's I mean, a whole nother subject. Well, I'm down. You just name the time and place. 
<laughs> Thank you, Laura. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Modern Ancestral Mamas. Check out the show notes for the resources. You can find Christine on Instagram at Nourish the Littles and online at nourishthelittles.com. You can find Corey on Instagram at For Nutrient Sake and online at fornutrientsake.com. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Ancestral Mamas. The information contained in this show is for informational purposes only. It should not be intended as medical advice and should not replace your relationship with your healthcare practitioner.